You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14 this morning. John 14, and we'll be picking up back in verse 15. John 14, remember we're at a tense moment in the meal between Jesus and his disciples. Their master and their teacher, Jesus, has just told them that he'll be betrayed by one of their own. And not only that, but that he's going to be leaving and going somewhere that they can't go also. The disciples are distressed. This isn't part of the plan. This isn't what they signed up for. After all the time and effort and work that they've done, Jesus is now going to abandon them. That's probably what they're feeling. But Jesus is preparing them for his departure, really two departures. First, the departure of his death and burial. That will, of course, be the most trying departure. But then another departure is in mind as well, and that's his ascension to heaven when he does return to the Father and leaves them here on earth. He has both of those departures in view, and he's preparing them for both of those. And his ultimate preparation comes in the form of a promise this morning in John 14, 18, where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus is leaving them, but he's not leaving them alone. And here we have the first major promise of the coming Holy Spirit. Of course, this isn't the first time the Holy Spirit is seen in the Bible. He isn't someone new, just like Jesus isn't someone new in the Gospels. You can find Jesus all over the Old Testament if you know what to look for. It's just in the Gospels he's finally revealed more clearly. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. We get glimpses of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but it's here at the end of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of the church age that the third person of the Trinity is more fully revealed and made known to mankind. And if you're unfamiliar with the word Trinity, you actually won't find it in your Bibles Instead, it's a word that's been used across the centuries to describe the doctrine that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's really the most simplest definition there is of the Trinity, which I know that definition just leads to more questions. And admittedly, the doctrine of the Trinity is probably the most mysterious and most difficult of doctrines to really grasp for us. I wish I could give you a good illustration or example to to explain it, but there's really no illustration that adequately captures the Trinity. But in today's passage, we'll clearly see all three persons of the Godhead acting in their distinct roles, yet at the same time being completely unified in purpose. And this is one of two passages in John, the other we'll see in chapter 16, where Jesus describes the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer. You know, the Holy Spirit may be, for Christians, the most misunderstood of the Trinity. I think that's a fair assessment. If you've spent any time in other churches, especially churches of other denominations, you may have noticed there's a wide variety of beliefs and practices concerning the Holy Spirit. Now, my goal this morning is not to debate any of those other groups or churches. My goal this morning is the same as every other time I step behind this pulpit, and that is to open up God's word to you, and as Second as Timothy says, to rightly handle the word of truth. And so, 
To the day I die, I want to be known as a person of the Bible. Our faith is experiential, but it's not founded in experience. It's founded upon truth, God's revealed truth. And in this book is the perfect word of God. It is without error. It is completely sufficient, revealing everything we need to know about God and about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And today we'll read from the words of Jesus himself who this Holy Spirit is. And in today's passage, we'll see four jobs specifically that the Holy Spirit performs in the lives of believers. Of course, these aren't the only four jobs, but these are the four we'll see in today's passage that the Holy Spirit performs in our lives. So with that in mind, let's begin reading in John 14, verse 15. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is a continuation of the passage we studied last week, where in verse 12, Jesus told them that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. And Jesus doubles down on that here, saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And notice how straightforward and plain this statement is. There's no other option, no other route that Jesus gives his followers. To love is to obey. If you say you love God, but you do not obey him, then you show that your words are actually false. There's no middle ground. There's no love without action. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. But there's a problem. Mankind is not very good at keeping God's commands. That's always been the case. Adam and Eve basically had two or three commandments to follow. That's all they had to to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and don't eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden. And yet they failed. And the rest of the Old Testament, and human history for that matter, is one big testimony to the fact that mankind cannot perfectly obey God's word. And so we cannot perfectly love God. We can't do it on our own. We need something else. We need someone else to enable us to live like Jesus. And that brings us to the first job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to live like Jesus. The Holy Spirit enables us to live like Jesus. He gives us the power and the motivation to keep his commandments. The Holy Spirit is the secret weapon, or really not so secret weapon, of every Christian. He's the catalyst for living out our faith and pursuing holiness. That's why Jesus tells them to keep his commandments, but then immediately follows that up with, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. We need help with following this command. And now let's pause here because in the, in the ESV that I'm reading from, it translates it helper. Your version may say advocate or counselor. And I, I don't want you to think because the role is called a helper that it's, that it's any less significant. I know in, in the English language, helper doesn't have the force um, behind it that, that's communicated here. I prefer the word advocate But the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in our lives. And also, notice it says another helper. In other words, the Holy Spirit is, is not coming and performing a completely new task. He's not starting something new or original. Rather, he's continuing the work in the ministry of Jesus. 
He's the continuation of that and bringing it to its fulfillment. Because unlike Jesus, who will leave the disciples and return to heaven, the Holy Spirit is with them forever. So every believer truly has the Spirit of God with them every second of the day, and that will never change. And this is something unique to believers. Verse 17 says, The world cannot receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. You know, there's many things that believers can share with those outside the church. We can show the love and grace and mercy of God to those around us, but there are parts of our faith that we cannot share even in the slightest way at all. Believers alone have access to the Holy Spirit of God. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when the world around us is so messed up, why people fail to live out even the most basic tenets of God's law because they're completely blind. They're alienated to the things of God. They don't see him or know him. But we have the Spirit of God within us enabling us to love God by keeping his commandments. And so let's pick back up in verse 18. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loved me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus makes the promise that he won't leave the disciples as orphans. He will come to them. He's likely referring to the time after his resurrection. The 40 days that Jesus spends between his resurrection and his ascension. And during that time, he he really doesn't spend any time with those outside of his followers. That's why he says the world won't see him anymore. And in verse 20, Jesus is trying to tell them how things will be different after the resurrection. He says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything, even for the disciples. And at that point, they will finally understand all that Jesus came to do and accomplish. And I want you to see in these verses the incredibly privileged relationship we get to share with Jesus. He again emphasizes that the one who keeps his commands is the one who loves him. Then he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Realize that this love Jesus is describing is different than the love we see in John 3.16. In John 3.16, God has acted in love towards the world, through the work of Jesus Christ, but God does not love the world in a relational, personal, ongoing way. That is a love uniquely reserved for his children, for those who believe in Jesus. And Jesus compares that relationship that we have with him to the relationship he shares with the Father. And there's no relationship more intimate and unified than that between the Father and the Son. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you are personally and infinitely loved by the Father and the Son. You have a love from God that is not available to the world. It's a pure love. 
It's an infinite love. As Paul says in Romans, it's a love that nothing in the entire creation can separate us from. It's a love that never goes away. As Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And it's a love that's more than just theology and theory. It's actually felt. Jesus says he'll manifest himself to them. He will make himself known and felt. And to that, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, in case you didn't know, there's two disciples named Judas, asked him, how is it possible that you're going to manifest yourself to us, but not the rest of the world? They, it's not adding up how that will be possible. To which Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is presumably through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the second job of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus' presence felt. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus' presence felt. We talked last Sunday about how the greatest desire of the Christian should be for the presence of God. And that for all of time, God has shown himself to be a God that desires for his people to experience his presence. The tabernacle and then the temple were designed so that God's presence could dwell among his people. His full presence was too holy and too righteous to be witnessed by sinful men. No one could see the full glory of God and live. And so God's presence resided veiled within the innermost part of the tabernacle and then the temple. But then Jesus changes everything. He is the God-man, fully God and fully human, the perfect revelation of God to man. But it gets even better because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's amazing, but the Holy Spirit is now God in us. And the Holy Spirit within us makes the presence of Christ known and felt in our lives. And that probably sounds crazy if you're not a Christian. Like, how is that possible? It, it sounds, sounds a little out there. But if you're a Christian, you know this to be true. You have experienced the presence of Christ in your life. Maybe it was his comforting presence in, in the middle of a dark time in your life. Maybe that could be right now, where you're dealing with a diagnosis, a chronic illness, grief, depression, financial strain, but in the middle of it, you can testify to feeling the comforting presence of Christ. Or maybe it was feeling his presence of conviction, of, of Christ leading you back onto the narrow path. Or maybe you felt his presence of, of joy and praise when you consider all his many blessings. And if you're a Christian, you know you've experienced this. And what a precious role of the Holy Spirit to make known and felt the presence of our Savior in good times and in bad. And one of our goals as believers should be to experience this presence more and more. To live in such a way where we desire it more than anything and we pursue it more than anything. And if you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. But there's many Christians that live as if they've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is around. They've forgotten that their bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. And you can get sucked into living as if this material, physical world around us is all that there is. You begin to operate like a Christian atheist, which is completely an oxymoron, but it's someone who says they believe there's a God, but their life would say that they actually don't believe there is. And if that's how you're living, then 
your mind completely focuses on the things of this world and your life prioritizes the things of this world, then don't be surprised if you don't remember the last time you felt the presence of God. But on the other hand, there's a way of living that is spirit-empowered where I believe you can walk in his presence on a regular basis. James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When someone draws near to you, you feel their presence. You feel it. You know it. And that's so simple of a statement by James, but it's so incredible at the same time that God isn't playing hard to get. He isn't stingy with his grace and love. He doesn't hold things back from us that are good for our souls. It's possible to walk in the power of the Spirit and experience the abiding presence of the Lord but we must be people who are committed to drawing near to him through his word and through talking with him in prayer and through the fellowship of the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one that makes his presence known. Now let's continue reading in verse 25 and discover two more jobs of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The third job of the Holy Spirit is to point us back to Christ. The Holy Spirit points us back to Christ. Theologian J.I. Packer describes the Holy Spirit as having a floodlight ministry. A floodlight ministry. The Spirit acts as a floodlight on the work and person of Jesus so that we can see him better. And I don't know if I could legitimately say which job of the Holy Spirit is the most important, but this one certainly has a good argument for it. And look at what Jesus says. The Father is sending the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. The Spirit is coming as an emissary of Jesus, just like Jesus came as an emissary of the Father and so the Holy Spirit is going to teach them, but what is he going to teach them? He's teaching them the things that Jesus said. He's not teaching anything new. There's no new revelation. He's extending the words of Jesus, and he'll be pointing them back to Christ. Here's how Packer describes it. He says, it is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look to him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. So the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing us back to Christ because we're saved through the blood of Jesus. We're not saved through the Holy Spirit. We're saved through Jesus. So one of the clearest ways to determine if someone or some church has gotten off track in their understanding or practice of the Spirit is to evaluate whether their focus is mainly on the Spirit or on Jesus. 
Is their worship focused on the Spirit or on Jesus? Is their prayers focused on Jesus or the Spirit? Because Spirit-empowered living actually leads us to exalt Jesus Christ. And that's one of the wonders of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are fully and equally God. Yet, within the Trinity, we find an eternal and joyful submission between the members of the Godhead. The Son submits to the will of the Father. And as we've seen, Jesus attests to that time and time again. And here in verse 28, he even says, the Father is greater than I. Then the Holy Spirit acts in such a way to point us back to Jesus. And then at the same time, through the resurrection, the Father exalts the Son and gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. So we see this mysterious and beautiful harmony within the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit enables us to live like Jesus. He makes Jesus' presence felt, and he points us back to Jesus. And you see how those first two actually point to the third one. And now the fourth job of the Spirit in today's passage is to comfort us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. We see this scattered throughout today's passage. Really, the whole thrust of this speech is to bring the disciples comfort and peace. Verse 16, the new helper will be with them forever. Verse 17, he dwells with you and will be with you. Verse 18, I won't leave you as orphans. Verse 23, we will come to him and make our home with him. Then verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. You see, the peace and the comfort is the emphasis behind all of this. And through the words of Christ, through the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit brings us the peace and comfort of being a follower of Christ. And there's no truer line than verse 27, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now, what does the world give us? Certainly not peace. The world around us does not give us any peace. It heaps on anxiety and fear and worry and uncertainty. It communicates messages like you're not doing enough, you're, you're not good enough. It forces us to compare ourselves to others. And even the good things that this world offers us rarely bring peace with them. You get a bigger house, but now you just have more space to clean and, and room to keep up. You get a new car, but now you're paranoid about anything scratching the outside or spilling something on the inside. You get a promotion and a raise, but now you have more responsibility and more pressure to perform. I really can't think of any situation where life can actually offer us genuine peace. It's not built or designed in such a way to be able to produce peace. And that's why Jesus doesn't just say he gives us peace. He says, my peace I give to you. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that mediates that peace-producing presence of Jesus in our hearts and minds. But the peace Jesus gives does not come free. He was bought at the highest price. And in verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Sounds kind of sinister right there. The ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. Judas certainly was responsible for his part in this whole scheme but the devil himself is at work in getting Jesus to the cross to kill him. He's orchestrating things to destroy the Son of God, or so he thinks. Because look at the next phrase. Jesus says, he has no claim on me. To Jesus' opponents and to the devil, this looked like a solid victory ahead for them. Jesus, the Son of God, or whoever they thought he was, 
is going to die. Sure, he's performed all these miracles. He's attracted crowds of thousands. He's even raised people from the dead. But none of that will matter once we snuff him out. And all that potential and hype will just be silenced. Or so they think. What looks like a victory for Satan will actually end up being his defeat. The Son of Man will crush the serpent's head. And it's because he has no claim on him. He has no charge to bring against the perfect spotless blood or lamb of Jesus Christ because he's perfectly obeyed the Father in every way. And this is huge. Eternal salvation for everyone is on the line here. If Jesus would have slipped up one time, if he would have stepped outside of God's will for just one moment, if he would have committed one small sin, then the devil would have a charge to bring against him. He would not be the perfect spotless sacrifice that would be sufficient for atonement for our sins. We would still be hopelessly dead in our condemnation. But Jesus declares, he has no claim on me. Instead, he's done everything the Father has commanded him to. And he says, it's in order that the world may know that I love the Father. The world must witness, bear witness to the love the Son has for the Father And that comes in the form of the son's perfect obedience, even to the point of death on the cross. And again, the wonder of the Trinity is on display. It's the perfect love from the son to the father that has existed for all eternity that leads him to the cross. And through what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, there is now a way for us to be brought into the family of God and experience the love of the father for the first time. And it's not a love that we get to wishfully hope to see one day or experience one day. It's a love that we get to experience right now, right here, through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me?